0: which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Laura Pickens here, welcoming you to episode 68 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I've just spent like the last half hour listening to snippets of the three previous episodes I've recorded, I try to stay organized with this and, you know, plan ahead and outline. And I do all this, but instead of doing it in one place, I do it on notebook pages and little round circles of paper taken from Hugh's desk. And so I, I don't, you know, I have it written in a certain way and then it's not at all what I thought. So I had to remember what I said when so that I'm not repeating myself or thinking that I've said something I hadn't. So anyway, you know, we are continuing along in season 6 which initially you know started out as high school and college and then has become really my whole life up to my return from boston and coming back to concord so it's a lot more than high school and college but that's kind of how it is one thing morphs into the next into the next i'm recording this a few days after thanksgiving will come out in december right around christmas i think when you're hearing this now merry christmas <laughs> But right now it's sort of a gray November day here in New Hampshire. And tomorrow, which is the 28th of November, as I record this, I'm having my foot operated on again. I'm anxious to to have it done and have it heal so I can really continue along with my fitness routines and such. I'm finally getting into shape again in a way I haven't for a long, long time. I talked in one of my prior episodes about the effect of grief and trauma on my body. How Molly's death really, really decimated me physically. And so I finally am in a place where I can run and work hard in the gym and enjoy the physical discomfort that can come with an intense workout and feel okay about it. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about relationships, relationships, relationships. And somebody that's been sexually abused, especially at a young age, grows up with a huge amount of confusion and mistrust around love and nurturing and trust and and what it means to be cared for and loved unconditionally. Sexual abuse takes that completely out of the picture, and so somebody that you think, you know, you're supposed to love or that you do love, in a caretaking sort of way, you're a child and that's an adult, and they do this terrible thing, and then some of their behavior is the same, but they harbor this secret, and it just turns everything upside down. And not surprisingly, this will spill into friendships and relationships. So as always, in getting ready to talk about my disastrous history with friendships and relationships. I went online and did some research and I have a couple of different websites that I frequent and follow. And so in children who have suffered sexual abuse as a child, then they grow into teenagers and young adults and adults. There are several things that come up in terms of relationships and friendships and what makes those work or not. So I'm just going to list them and then I'll address sort of each one. So distrust, choosing the wrong person, carrying shame, never feeling good enough, over giving, putting up walls, having issues with intimacy. So all of those things resonate with me when I think of not just relationships, romantic relationships, but friendships as well. Long before I was sexually abused, I was the kind of person that I just noticed right away if somebody didn't have something and I felt like they should have mine. I go back to Molly giving, wanted to give her Easter basket away in second grade. She really just felt that she didn't need it and she should give it away. Would have missed it terribly. (laughs) This I know to be true. But I remember my friend Jill was sick, and we did this art project at school. And she had been really sick and missed a ton of school. And I loved it. We made this hat, it was like a cone shaped hat. And we took scissors and cut strips of colored paper and made them curl. And we glued them onto the hat. Just remember how much I loved it. And I gave mine to Jill. And when I got home, I cried and cried and cried because I was sad because I didn't want to give it away but she had missed it. And I knew it would make her happy. And it did make her happy. You know, she got to have something that she missed out on by not being at school. But I, I remember it to this day. I remember it was a rainy day when I brought it down to her house. She lived around the corner and their front door was red at the time. And they had a big square front porch. And I remember her mother opening the door and Jill put reach other hand out to get it. You know, being sick was different back then. There weren't as many fancy medications as there are now. And so you, if somebody was sick, you tried really hard not to catch it. So From the beginning, I was somebody that would give my stuff away. I also know that I was quite full of myself sometimes and thought I should have access to other people's things as well. So that going into my abuse was a characteristic that I have all the time, the overgiving piece. And when I look back over my life and I look at relationships that I had, you know, friendships and social groups and how I fit into all of those things, there are times that I just had really, really troubling memories. And I remember that very seldom was I able to have friendships that didn't have some sort of drama. Now, I've had people in my life tell me that I'm a drama queen and that I bring the drama on. I don't deny for a moment that I can be dramatic and I find myself in the midst of drama all the time. Whether or not this means I like it remains to be seen, but I do know that there are behaviors I have and ways that I act that might support this belief that I'm a drama queen. When I look back, Through my elementary and middle school years and my high school years, all of my friendships and relationships are clouded by how messed up I felt inside. I was never okay. From the first incidents of abuse, I was never okay inside. I was always anxious and had a nervous tummy. I was always worried. I was always on guard. So that carries over into everything that you do. I worried about my little brother and sister. I worried about my mother if she was away. Was she coming back? After I told and my home situation and my day-to-day life was a bit safer, this continued anxiety permeated all my friendships. I was very, very overbearing. I wanted to be friends with everybody. Look, everybody, here I am. I tried very hard to get involved in things that created social groups. And I did so quite successfully. When I was an elementary school student and started to suffer socially because of what was going on with me, I joined things. I was on swim team, and so I had my swimming friends. And some of those people were older than me and they all seemed much more confident than I was. I was this skinny, shivering little thing in the swimming pool. But I remember meeting people in the swimming realm and and feeling like I had new friends. I joined a Girl Scout troop. I sang in the choir. I chose activities that created for me a social circle and a network of friends that would keep me occupied and being a part of a bigger picture. That was always incredibly important to me. And I also typically always had a best friend. And I know that over the years, I would oftentimes be all about one friend for a while, and then all about another friend for a while, and then all about another friend for a while, and then come back to the one I hadn't seen. You know, I remember that as being sort of pervasive in my life. When I think to my elementary school years, probably my most longstanding best friend would have been Suzanne. She and I just maintained a friendship forever. When she called up and invite me over to play, I was always so unbelievably happy. And it was a, a bit of a break from my neighborhood. And it was always just different. And I had my neighborhood friends. Now, what happened there as I went along in life is some of my neighborhood friends, specifically the ones in my grade, Terry and Jill, they were sort of in the popular group. And I definitely wasn't. As my life went along, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, I did not move into that popular group at all. I was definitely on the fringes of that. I had some friends there. I remember I was good friends with a girl named Laura, and she was in and out of that group. She ended up going to private school and (laughs) it didn't matter anymore. But I know that I just was on the fringes of it sometimes, that some of my friends were very, very well accepted in that group and others were not. So I was sort of always feeling a bit on the outside. But Suzanne was a longtime friend for me and my other church friends. So Anna comes to mind. Susan and Becky, they were sisters who lived out a Little Pond Road, they were good church friends. And a girl named Abby, you know, we all hung out together because of our church connections. Didn't necessarily go to the same elementary schools or travel in the same social circles day to day. Those relationships were incredibly important to me. If I had to choose a neighborhood friend that was truly my best friend, I would have to say it was Jackie. So Jackie is Jill's little sister. And she and I, I think we spent every New Year's Eve and New Year's Day together for five or six years in a row. And when you're a little kid, that's a lot of years in a row. It doesn't seem like much now. We had traditions. Christmas Day, we'd call each other on the phone and talk about everything that we got. We just had sleepovers. You know, Jackie and I could eat a box of cereal, a thing of fluff, and a pound of butter in one sitting by making Rice Krispie Treats. And we would take a loaf of bread, a package of ham, a package of cheese, and some mustard, and make ham and cheese sandwiches all day. We had wonderful times. And when I think back, those friendships jump out at me my friendship with Jackie and my friendship with Suzanne and there was safety in those friendships as well Suzanne was the first person I told about my abuse that was a friend I think she might have been the only friend I told actually at that time anyway and I told her before I had even moved safely back home after revealing the truth to my mother and my mother had to kick everybody out let me come home alone for a while and all of that so they were two very very safe friends for me I have to say though, when I go back to my childhood and think of people I was friends with, when I got into middle school age, I became really good friends with a girl named Annie Twedell and a girl named Sally, Sally. (laughs) through gymnastics. I met them both at gymnastics camp. And initially Sally lived far away from me, so I didn't see her for a whole school year. To particular school year, I did see Annie because she lived in a nearby town. And so we hung out together all the time. When my parents remarried, You know, I boycotted the wedding. I spent the weekend at Annie's house. And that was another example of me putting myself at great physical risk to avoid an emotionally tough situation. We had cats and I would wheeze and wheeze and wheeze. And I remember that particular night, I woke up so many times in the night, these store-bought inhalers trying to make myself stop wheezing. It was awful. But that was the choice I made. I would prefer the physical discomfort over the emotional discomfort, which is a telling statement right there, isn't it now? That's some pretty big emotional pain right there. If I'd rather hurt or not be able to breathe than to feel the sadness or the anxiety. And then when I got into high school and I started running, I had all my track and field friends. And so that was a group we called ourselves the Fearsome Five. And I remember I was so excited to be a part of anything like that. And that was Maggie, Elaine, me, Bridget, and Selena. And we were five, you know, connected by track and by other social circles, but we all had our own little unique groups of friends as well. And so We all united and met because of track, and then we became good friends. But I also had other running friends. I had Karen, and Karen and I had met in seventh grade math, actually. And I had Deb, who I'm still really good friends with. So I had these groups of girls with whom I hung out. And again, they would overlap sometimes. I spent a lot of time with a girl named Jill, and we're still friends to this day. When I look at those friendships, I see that knowing what I know about these women now, a lot of my best friends were also girls that were struggling on the inside, struggling secretly, not necessarily with sexual abuse by any means, but, you know, we live in a much more open culture now, as much as they don't always agree with one another. You know, you can talk about a lot of things now without the eyebrows going up. When I was growing up, you talked talk about nothing. Life was Fight Club. What happens in Fight Club stays in Fight Club. You didn't talk about anything. You just had to put on your public face. And that's how you went through lights. When I look at my college friends, you know, Marty, who I ran against in high school, <laughs> ended up going to college together. And we became very good friends. Vicki, one of my first best friends that I met new in college was Vicki. Again, we would have these amazing conversations and share so many of our sort of personal struggles and strifes, high school experiences and such. Maricel, she was one of my very first best friends in college as well. You know, I'd have to say the whole that whole freshman class, but I mean, I was I had better friendships with some than others, and again, the people that could manage friendships with me were the ones that could get emotionally invested. I think I was a high maintenance friend, and when I look at friendships I've maintained and friendships I've lost over the years, I realize that I potentially required a lot of energy. And then shortly after college, I had a really good friend named Martha. <laughs> you know, and now in my in my Molly lost life, Martha lost a sister remembers vividly what that was like. And I remember when I first found out that about her, I had no no ability to relate to what that would feel like at all. But when I lost Molly, she was one of the first to reach out. And of course she would be. She understands the trauma of that. And she asks often how Gracie is. I name these people and I'm missing and leaving out a million, I'm sure. my Probably my longest adult friend is Polly. And again, Polly and I share a lot of struggles and, and difficulties. We've gone in and out of friendship and in and out of our own issues together and on our own. I list all these people (laughs) because they come to my head right away. At 59 years of age, I can remember vividly who I looked at and felt comfortable around and who I looked at and didn't feel comfortable around all the way back to kindergarten. And there were tons of people in my life that just made me feel like I was safe with them and okay with them. So when I think of distrust in friendships, I don't know that I consciously distrust anybody. I think if anything, I'm too... Trusting. My mother would always worry about me as a little girl because I would talk to everybody. I would talk to strangers. I would I would say hi to anyone and everyone and tell them all about myself. And my mother always worried I was gonna get, you know, abducted because I was just so overly friendly. I think for me, this trust manifests itself in my behaviors. I have a very hard time in relationships really maintaining what's the word? Not loyalty, because I'm certainly loyal emotionally, but I always have an out, I always have an escape hatch. Clearly that comes from not trusting my surroundings. I'll go back to how hard it is to know what love is when the person that's supposed to love you the most betrays you in such a horrifying way. And so it takes trust right off the shelf. Choosing the wrong person. So in terms of friends, I don't know that I would actively choose the wrong person but I would certainly accept the wrong person. One of the issues with being somebody like me having all the characteristics of an abuse survivor and an overpleaser and you know when you look at my family dynamics middle child people pleaser all of those things very easily taken advantage of i'm just super willing to help i'm not some big amazingly generous person that's not what i'm saying at all i'm not up here bragging about myself i am saying that the number of times people have said to me friends have said to me hey be careful now slow down don't jump in with both feet here don't get too attached don't get too involved boundaries boundaries it isn't that they think I'm doing something wrong. It's they know that this could turn around and bite me in the ass. And it has more than once, way more than once, have I just been really utterly taken advantage of and not even been able to realize it until it was too late. You know, in my recent life, I look at, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what happens in season seven is about me just really allowing the wrong people to infiltrate my life. The other thing I've done, which takes a bit of the blame off the other person is I oftentimes find people in my life that really need help. I'm happy to be the one that helps them. And so when I first moved back to Concord, I dove into my friendship with Megan. I don't regret that at all. She was the kindest remains, the kindest person ever, and never once took for granted or took advantage of my help. But I spent every free moment I had my first couple of years back in Concord, my first several years back in Concord with her in and out of that friendship, hours and hours and hours, because... We had a good time together and I obviously got something from it. I remember when she was still in a residential facility, I would spend sometimes 30 hours a week visiting her. 30 hours. I was working full time. I wasn't married or had kids because I wouldn't have had that time. I have done that in my life. Jumped in with both feet, overly friendly with someone. Okay, shame. When you look at distrust, you look at choosing the wrong people or accepting friendship from the wrong people. Shame comes into it. When you carry inner shame, you already feel bad about yourself. You feel unworthy and undeserving. I have to say, I've felt that way almost my whole life. And I was easily, easily told to feel that way. I've shared the story of my neighbor who told me that God didn't love me. And I believed her. I thought, of course, God doesn't love me. And that was, that proclamation to me was said to me before my abuse started. So when it started, I remember being willing to accept it because, well, God doesn't love me. So of course this would happen. I remember as a child, when I would pray, say prayers, I would pray to God to love me. Please, God, love me. Please, please let me be enough. Oh, God, please. You know, I was always pleading with God to shine love upon me, which is, you know, when I think about myself as an adult woman, I'm like, oh, good Lord. But when I think of that, Barbara, I just ate for her. Like, you know, like how, how sort of sad that, you know, some little girl is pleading with God to love her. Shame and not never feeling good enough sort of go hand in hand. I was always amazed when I was good at something or even the best at something. You know, I was a good student, but not the best student ever. I did well. And sometimes it was really what I put into it, you know, effort-wise. But I joined sports, swimming. I had a couple of good races, so I joined the swim team. I was not the best swimmer at all. And then I did gymnastics, knowing full well I would be terrible at gymnastics. I loved it, but I'm not flexible. I'm not coordinated. I have terrible balance. I have no depth perception whatsoever. I was never going to be good at gymnastics. And yet that was what I chose. And I spent hours and hours training. My whole social circle and every free moment I had was in the gymnastics gym and I'm terrible at it. I got no positive feedback from that sport at all. I really struggled. Overgiving. Yeah, that's absolutely something that I do. Spending 30 hours a week with somebody in a residential facility is probably overgiving. You know, I could have had a much more balanced life at that time. I took care of myself, but I did spend a huge, I brow-raising amount of time with Megan during those years. And I can, I can remember my mother sometimes wondering, what's going on with you that you spend that much time with Megan? It's fulfilled a need at the time. I think of that girl, that student that I helped in Bo that had lost a parent, how many hours I spent counseling her and supporting her and hearing her and being there for her, only to have her turn around and you know, make up that terrible lie and all that terrible stuff that happened. And all I did was help her, you know, but I overhelped and I overhelped the wrong person. That was an example of like all of this. Putting up walls. I don't see that I've ever put up walls. Maybe I put them up later on in a relationship when I've committed and I'm with somebody and I put them up. I don't don't see that I, I have a hard time creating walls. I think I need them. I would say I'm the opposite that way. My desire to help and to please is so pervasive that I'm willing to let people walk all over me if I think I'm pleasing them and making them happy. I notice this habit now, actually, and I've been very, very conscious. When people need coverage, coaching, CrossFit classes, my initial reaction is to say yes because I love it. I love coaching CrossFit, and I just want to be in the gym as much as I can. But I also know that there are times when I have other things I need to do, and I need to also assert myself and you know say, look, I'm worthy of having my own schedule. I shouldn't just always be coaching when other people can't. So these are things that the fact that I can even acknowledge it and see it to me indicates a bit of progress in that way. But I am always, you know, the first one, you know, to reach out and help, even when it's probably not in my best interest to do so. And then finally, intimacy issues. So I hate that word intimacy. It makes my neck hairs stand up. And that's because I assign sexuality to it. I think of sexual intimacy. And intimacy is also just having an incredibly close friendship. So when I think of my adult friendships, you know, working back from Molly's death, I haven't had a super intimate friendship since Molly died. I had Robin. And that was a very, very intimate relationship. And that's one that I'll talk about in season seven when I talk about what prey I am for people that have agendas that involve using people, not really being friends with people. And I was easy prey for somebody like Robin. I don't have any examples when I really think of intimacy and really getting close to somebody. Bad things happen to me. It doesn't prevent me from doing it again. You know, that's that's the tricky part. I look at intimacy in terms of friendships. I've had very, very good friends. And I think what happens is the intimacy becomes imbalanced. I have had several really good friends not talk to me for long periods of time. Marty and Sally, both two people who are, you know, long-time, unbelievably good friends of mine, both spent several years actively not speaking to me. Cut-off conversation, not invited to their weddings, not visited when they're local, you know, just like we had never been friends. And, you know, I don't, Marty and I have talked about it a little bit. I think we were both going through things and, and now we're like, what the heck? That was stupid. Sally and I have never really talked about it. We don't live nearby. Sally's <laughs> several time zones away. But I know that there were elements about me that were probably difficult for her to manage. And I I can be that way. I've mentioned Jack Frazier several times, my good friend Jack. And he'll say how high maintenance I am as a friend and that I'm selfish. And because I'm not, I always feel because I'm not giving him what he wants in the friendship. I'm like, what is how does that make me selfish? Well. If he's feeling that I'm not reciprocating, if the friendship is imbalanced, then it is selfish. And how do I step out of myself to sort of see? Friendships and relationships for me have been difficult. They've been profoundly wonderful. I've had amazing friends and amazing relationships, but also incredibly difficult and traumatic and an incredible amount of effort and not always successful. When I think of relationship relationships, you know, I I didn't have a super healthy relationship for a long time. I was typically dating people well older than me. Whatever I was looking for in that relationship was based upon all of the things I brought in with my sexual abuse, choosing the wrong people, distrusting, feeling shameful. And oftentimes the shame makes you live up to you're not good enough. See, I'm not good enough. See, I'm not good enough. And then just, you know, creating the trust to not have intimacy issues. And again, for me to feel okay with intimacy, that doesn't have to be sexual. I have a real hard time, like right now, since Molly's death too, I cannot stand being touched. And this was something very different. I was a class A hugger from day one, and I just have a hard time with it now. Just don't touch me. which <laughs> is just incredibly different for me, but I have a very hard time with it. Friendworthy. worthy and it doesn't matter. It can be my mother. It can be Kenny. The only people I can really stomach being touched by are Gracie and Jack. And of course, they're my children, and so that makes sense. In certain times, generating a hug posing for a picture, that's all fine. But if there's a serious conversation going on and there's a touch involved, I have a hard time with it. When I look back at my grief process with Molly, one of the best things I've ever done was my friend Deb took my legs and just put them in her lap and just held my legs in her lap. We're sitting in, you know, chairs on the lawn. You know, that was just such an intimate thing with no expectation and it wasn't uncomfortable. But those are things that I remember. Booning and snuggling, ugh, you know, and these are things that I, that I used to really love and I can't, I had around them at all right now. So what does that mean? I imagine it means I'm in a process, in a place where I'm still dealing with all of this. A big piece of recovering from sexual abuse is owning both my piece and what happened and assigning blame to those who deserve it. Emily, who I used to coach when she was at Concord High, is the finder of amazing little sayings. And she said this to me earlier. And we oftentimes, we're encouraged to share good things about one another. And we're very much discouraged to share bad things. And and I can see that. You know, there's a lot to be said for just, if what you're saying doesn't bring happiness, you know, is it necessary? Will it hurt people? You know, there's a lot of reasons not to say certain things, but I also feel very much that that puts a lot of pressure and burden on someone that's been wronged by somebody to carry that around as some secret they have to hold. Because to speak about it is considered mean or gossipy or nasty. So it says, normalize talking about the abuse and the trauma. If it's easy for you to say someone was nice to you, it should be just as easy for you to say someone abused you and treated you badly. The toxic shame is not yours to carry. The toxic shame. If I had to put one phrase over what I feel has impacted every friendship and relationship I've ever had, it would be toxic shame. It would be that I come to the table in a shameful state because these bad things have happened to me and it created a feeling inside of me of shamefulness and self-hatred and self-loathing that is very difficult to separate myself from. It just is. And there have been times in my life where I've been okay. And typically those would be around things I did that made me feel good about myself. So I think of running and I think of how good I always felt in the the running circles. Does that mean I didn't have a lot of running boyfriends? No, I had plenty of running boyfriends. Did it mean I didn't have tons of teammates that came in and out of my life? No, of course I did. But I also stood in those circles with more confidence than I stood in many other circles because I felt good about my body when I was running. Also in my life, especially as a young child, but people that I would look to as mentors, I've had people stand out as being very, very solid for me. When I was at gymnastics camp and was really going through the reality of sexual abuse and, you know, living with the fact that this had happened to me, there was a gymnastics coach named Ginny Sukallis. And she was a huge ear for me one of my summers at gymnastics camp because, because I just was so confused and messed up about dealing with sexual abuse and how much I didn't want to go home. I loved being away from it all, you know, away from all of it, away from my mother, away from my siblings, away from anyone that knew anything about me. And she was incredibly supportive and let me talk and was very supportive and encouraging around dealing with sexual abuse. Of course, I think of Mr. and Mrs. Garrett. So I met them as swim coaches and then Mr. Garrett was the assistant principal at my high school and Mr. Silva, the other assistant principal. Both of these men and Mrs. Garrett as well were incredibly supportive adults in my life who were not afraid to point out areas in my life that caused them to be concerned for my safety and well-being. They were not also not afraid to tell me, look, you need to to address this. Both Mr. Garrett and Mr. Silva worried about my drinking, my high school drinking habits, and neither of them were afraid to speak to me about it. They were wonderful. When I think of school teachers I had through the years, you know, of course, the ones I got along with were the younger, more open-minded ones, some of my more old-fashioned school teachers. But when I really, really think, I think of Mrs. Danny, she was my third grade teacher. I think of the Woods, Mr. and Mrs. Wood at St. Paul's Church. He was the choir master, so he played the organ, and, and then Mrs. Wood was my piano teacher. And they were just this sort of traditional older couple, and they lived at St. Paul's School. And when I think of safe people in my life, I think I just saw that they were safe, kind people that wouldn't hurt anybody. I was constantly looking for, especially male figures in my life that I felt would be safe. And church at the time seemed like a good place to look. I had a guidance counselor in middle school or junior high school named Mrs. Lemeland. and she put these groups together and did these fun things. You know, my memories, if I have a vague time in my life where I don't remember a lot, it's middle school. And I think it's because I was just going through so much that a lot of it sort of just gloms together. But she was super helpful. When I was in high school, (laughs) sleeping with my biology teacher, because that's such a safe thing to do. A couple of other teachers were concerned about me and were unafraid to sort of go to my then guidance counselor, Judy Burnham. And say look i'm really worried about barb this is what she does this is how she acts i'm just worried about her one of them was my math teacher mr serrard and one was mr smith harvey smith whose funeral i spoke at a few months ago they were not afraid to reach out and say hey you're worth something and you're worth supporting and and are you okay and you know that's that's just important you know i've i've had those people i would be remiss, however if I didn't mention, well, so I had some neighborhood moms, Ellie and Ninny. So Ellie was closer to my mother's age than Ninny, who was old enough to be my mother's mother, I think. Both very different, but both had a huge impact on my life. Both are in heaven now. And Suzanne's mother, Harriet, I came to know her really well when I moved back to Concord as an adult, because she was very active in AA. And I knew that all growing up. I didn't know what AA was, but I know that she went to meetings and when I went to my first meeting, she was super supportive and helpful and so glad that I was there. She was also, when when I you know told Suzanne about being sexually abused, I believe my mother told her. And so she also knew the whole picture of what was going on there. Let me sleep over like three nights in a row, which didn't happen in the seventies, which is different. None of you will be surprised who know me to know that of all the adults in my life. And so we haven't even gotten to college yet, but he started in high school as Coach Lutie. And Mr. Lutie was just Died in the wool, good human being. I don't always agree with his political views, but he didn't push that on anybody. He had his beliefs and his views and he lived by them. And he was a huge, huge supporter of me. And we remained close all through the years. And, and I sought him out. Graduating high school and moving on didn't mean I moved on from Mr. Lutie and I never ever went home without spending time with him. He was a huge help to me as I became a coach. He was an incredible help to me in my own running after college and, you know, until I sort of retired from competitive running. He was a huge, huge piece of my ability to deal with Molly's death because he had lost a child. He never stopped being my person, my mentor, my coach. He never stopped being my coach. And I think that I'm incredibly lucky. It was people like that that reminded me in my darkest moments that I was worthy and okay can sound sappy and I don't want it to sound sappy because I'm you know I I also have a great amount of self-confidence in areas I I know I'm strong. There are people I know who will listen to this and be like, oh my God, the Barb Higgins I know was full of herself. And maybe I am full of myself in some ways. I try not to be I try to be humble and gracious and I don't always pull that off. I can be very defensive and very, very offensive at the same time. The best defense is a good offense. (laughs) That's one of my life sayings I think. So back to why is it only okay to share the good things that people have done? You have to be very careful. My my story is mine, mine to tell. I have had terrible things done to me. I haven't even gotten through all of those and I'll share them because I feel that based on the reactions I've gotten already from this podcast, it's helpful for other people to know that they're not alone in what they're struggling through and suffering from. And I look at friends of Gracie's and Molly's. I look at my own friends. I look at you know people that have known me for a long time And I know that every once in a while, I'll get an email from somebody or a message that says, oh my gosh, I'm listening to your podcast and I never knew this, or I would love to meet and talk with you sometime. It happens quite a bit. I think that's the best part of this. So I'll wrap up here simply by sort of saying that for me, in my getting over sexual abuse and moving along with it in my life, it has very much affected relationships. I have had amazing romantic relationships. My relationship with Jay was very, very healthy for the time that it lasted. My relationship with David, when I think of them all, David and Kenny have to be the ones that were probably the two nicest people, really good people at heart without ever consciously wanting to hurt anybody. I think of Sev and and how intense and volatile that was. There was some incredible chemistry there. If I had to compare another relationship to that one, I, I think of Roy, That was a very, very intensely felt connection that surprised me from the very beginning. And when I think of how long some of these relationships have lasted, all of those are long-term relationships that have had lasting results. Are those the wrong choices for me? I don't know. I don't know. Right now, I'm very, very isolated emotionally. And I think it's a necessary place for me to be. I'm making peace with a lot in my life. And think sometimes that requires space. I have this little baby and a wonderful family, so I don't get a lot of alone time. So I create it for myself emotionally. If I said things I still struggle the most with, I actually think I struggle the most with all of them. I think I don't trust myself. You know, I loved my caregiver and that person molested me. So how can I trust what I think love is? And I know that's oversimplified, but it's pervasive for me. I don't know that I choose the wrong people, but I do choose situations that end up hurting me. I do it again and again. I don't have so much shame anymore. And I think part of that comes with my age. I could give a shit. That's what y'all think, (laughs) you know, to a point. I don't want people thinking things about me that are not true. If you want to know the truth about me and then have an opinion, that's fine. But I don't want people to think I did or said something that I didn't do. Never feel good enough. I think that in some ways we all feel that way, but I often feel that way. I'm just not quite good enough. Do I overgive? All the time, you know, that's something, if I have to pick one thing, that's something I really need to back off on. Putting up walls, I think I could learn to put some walls up. And I have them up now. And I think it's the first time I have really put them up. You know, don't get close. And then intimacy issues, forever and always. Again, that comes with my lack of self-trust. How dare I be intimate with somebody, friendship-wise, romantically, whatever, if I can't even judge if they're going to hurt me or not. So that's tricky. Childhood sexual abuse and how it's affected me and trauma. You know, I don't always know how to, how to rectify it and where to go with it. I will say that I'm incredibly lucky have had and continue to have the friends that I have. I have amazing friends. In my new life, in my post-Molly life, I have some incredible new friends. And I have a whole bunch of new friends in my post-Roy life, where I really haven't spoken to Roy at all now in over a year. But I have this circle of friends that are amazing. And some of them come from my spiritual mentoring. And some of them come from this professional entrepreneurial group that I've joined. And I'm meeting meeting amazing women. And I think to myself, why would these women want to be friends? And then I realize the same reason I want to be friends with them because they do amazing things. We all have our story. We all have our place that we sit. And so I have Susan and Lisa and Taylor and hopefully Linda, these amazing women who are just successful and kind and self-effacing and always looking to better themselves. I love it. And also willing to share what they have in a kind and healthy way. So I'm getting there. I really am getting there, is how I think. It's cloudy and gray as I end this episode 68. I can't believe I'm almost into the sevens. So listen, have a good Christmas. It's coming up. And I hope it's a happy one for you. I'll be in Florida. Yay! Be good to yourself. Buy yourself a nice Christmas gift. Fill yourself with stocking before you do the same for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.